Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We have got a great show today. We've got Kathy Williams, and we're going to talk about brain health, and it's something I think we all want to know more about. Kathy was born and raised in New Zealand. Now she lives in London, that lucky lady. She studied nutrition, naturopath, herbal medicine for over 10 years, and since then she's worked in different aspects of the health industry, including different sub supplement companies, health food stores, clinical practices, as well as managing multidisciplinary clinics. She has a personal story to share with us today, and it starts with her grandmother. Um, and that's really her grandmother ultimately passed away from dementia, and that's what drove her to try to get a better understanding of brain health because she wanted to know what she could do to take care of herself and reduce her own risk of that happening to her. And, you know, when it hits you on a personal level, it really does. It takes the focus where it needs to be. When she's learned a lot and she's learned that there's much that you can do on your own for to have good brain health. It's all about the way we eat, we move, we live. And, you know, understanding what the risks are. And it's not just, it's the mental health, which of course is dementia and Alzheimer's, but it also is about depression and anxiety. So Kathy, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, it's so interesting because we're living longer than we ever have before. Mm-hmm. And human life expectancy has grown spectacularly over the past few decades. And the longer we live, the more the, the more complex it gets. I always said when my boys were growing up, the bigger the boy, the bigger the problem. <laughs> and, and I think as we, you know, as we grow older, we do, we do experience more mental health issues. Absolutely. According to the World Health Organization, Alzheimer's and other brain diseases will affect one out of every five people at some point in their life. And for some, these conditions, they lead to lifelong disability worldwide. So, you know, share your story with our audience because it really moved me. Sure. So, yeah, my my lovely, um, extremely staunchly Scottish grandmother, um, she was my, my dad's uh, mother and she packed up the family and moved to New Zealand uh, when she was, gosh, I don't know how old, kids, kids were young and um, set up her family in New Zealand from, from the UK. And in back in around, I think it was about sort of 2014-ish that she sort of first got the diagnosis. And she wasn't having too many difficulties at the time. Just, you know, she thought it was age-related, these sort of memory loss things and forgetting what pills she had to take and forgetting appointments here and there. And she put it down to being, you know, just old, um, being sort of, you know, 90-ish at that point. And ultimately, they, you know, assessed her and um, they came away with a, a dementia diagnosis. And I think that really shook her. And I think part of, you know, that sort of um, getting that diagnosis really changed the course of, of her um, her condition as well. And she sort of went down quite downhill quite rapidly from there. Um, and ultimately, yes, she passed away at the end of 2018. Um, 
And by that point, like a lot of people with dementia, she was, you know, having hallucinations and barely recognizing like me, her grandchild or her son um, and uh, having sundowning episodes and all sorts of things. And it was just heartbreaking, just heartbreaking to watch. And I think for me, as I looked at that, I even with all of my study that I had done and, you know, nutrition and naturopathy and natural health, we hadn't really learnt an awful lot about brain health. And that kind of hit me at that point, how, how little we'd actually studied these sorts of conditions. And I think I, like a lot of people, um, thought that it was largely genetic and thought that it was largely to do with just getting old and aging. And I started to dig into it a little bit because the genetic part scared me, <laughs> to, to, put it, to put it bluntly. Um, and I started thinking, well, gosh, am I at risk? Like, is my dad at risk? Is my brother at risk? What, what have we got laying ahead of us um, with this kind of knowledge that, you know, my grandmother was suffering in this way? So I uh, dug into this topic um, quite, um, quite steadily at the time to sort of look at what I could do for myself and my family and how I could sort of help them as well. And it just wasn't long before the research absolutely astounded me just how much control we have uh, over our brain health and dementia and Alzheimer's specifically. And it just changed my life to know that it, it's not all in your genes and it's not this inevitable thing that everyone, you know, is, is going to succumb to when they're old, that, you know, we have the power to change that course of our history. And that was just hugely enlightening for me. Um, and as soon as I read how much power we did have, I was just like, if I didn't know all of this and, I, and I'm a nutritionist, you know, who else doesn't know all of this? Who else is sitting there feeling like me, feeling powerless, thinking that this is our fate? Um, I need to get out there and I need to, to spread this word. And since then, it became the, um, the sole kind of focus of my clinical practice. And I've been working uh, in this kind of area since then, essentially. Well, you know, it's so interesting because at the Brain Performance Center, we work with a lot of people and there's a lot of anxiety and depression, memory mm -hmm. loss, ADHD. And, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, well, I think I'm having cognitive impairment. And my response to that is, no, I think you're not cognitively fit. Absolutely. Well, what do you mean? What is, you know, Lee, what's cognitive fitness? And to me, that's the ability to learn, to reason, to remember, and to adapt your thinking processes into old age. But we can all be cognitively fit. Definitely. I 100% agree with that. And I think there's, yeah, there's definitely that difference, isn't there, between, um, you know, not impairment and not decline, but just not being optimally cognitively fit in that way. But I guess, you know, the hard part is, is that cognitive fitness really is shaped over your lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's not something, okay, I'm done with all that sugar. I'm done with those cigarettes. I'm done with whatever it is. We all have vices. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not something that you can just say no more and, and have that cognitive fitness come into play because that brain, you know, the brain's so interesting. It's not fully developed until you're in your mid to late twenties. Mm -hmm. And then man, it's rocking in the thirties, but in the forties, it starts to plateau a little bit. 
And then in the 50s, you can, that's when you start to see, maybe you don't know where you put your keys or you can't remember what's on your list. Um, But the good news is, is that you can change all that. And you can, with a lot of the things we do at the Brain Performance Center, neurofeedback, neuromodulation, um, creating neuroplasticity, but you don't have to come do those types of things to create that change. What is the first step that you tell people to do to create that, what I call cognitive fitness? I think that's very individualized. And I think um, what you say there about, you know, um, things sort of developing over time, I think is a really important part of it because there's research that's shown that the brain changes. So those little changes in the brain that ultimately lead to dementia and Alzheimer's, they actually start about 20 years, sometimes even more before a diagnosis. So 20 years before you even have those, you know, episodes of forgetfulness, those changes are already in motion. So you're absolutely right in that it's not something you can just suddenly kind of go like, (laughs) here we are in the moment, I'm going to do everything right and I'm going to be okay. We've got to look at this at the long term. And I think, therefore, the first step is, is going to be really individualized. I think it's going to be really dependent on uh, each person's individual risk factors. And I think that's a really important part of what I do and what I kind of promote is that, you know, there is no one thing. There is no one right thing that is going to work for everyone that is going to, you know, protect someone's brain or everyone's brain. And I hear that a lot, you know, even when we start talking about some of the things. So we start talking about exercise and certain nutritional factors and, um, you know, obviously quitting smoking and all of those sorts of things. And inevitably you get, um, you know, a a whole rush of people that say my father or my aunt or my mother or my sister or my brother or whatever, um, you know, ate incredibly well. They were super healthy. They exercised a lot and they still got dementia. And I think this is where this individualization really comes in. And we have to kind of look at this and and know that there are so many different contributors to good brain health. So we can't just kind of say, get out there and exercise. Yes, we should all do that, but that's not going to be like a silver bullet. There's not one thing that's going to fix this for everyone. And I think what everyone needs to focus on is looking at the whole range of factors that could impact uh, and we know sort of has some impact on brain health and using this kind of uh, Dr. Bredesen I love his um, approach and he's you know calls it rather than a silver bullet it's a silver buckshot because we've got to address lots of different things at once so I think while there's some really big factors like exercise I think and movement is just one of the key things that we just don't do enough of and um, is so so crucial for our brain health as well as the food components and the mindfulness and I just think there's no one thing Um, And I think the thing that is right for one person is going to be not necessarily the thing that's going to move the needle for the next person. So getting really individualized and actually looking at, um, you know, those contributing factors for each person is a really important part of the process. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, even when you stop and think about it, we all have different medical conditions Mm -hmm. and those affect the brain. I've worked, we've worked with a lot of people with brain injury over the last 15 yes. years. Yeah. And that certainly 
I mean, that certainly affects the way that the brain is going to age. And so does heart disease and a stroke and, and even diabetes. Absolutely. So, Oh, and all okay. of the all of those interventions for each of those things is going to be slightly different, right? So mm. it's um yeah, there's there's no one sort of one size fits all approach. No, there's not. I mean, I, there's no. I've worked with three generations of families, um, and they're all like, my brain's going to look exactly like hers. I'm like, no, it's not. Nope. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it never does. You know, <laughs> I think that. We're at a perfect time, though, just to really where this is becoming more interesting, because in 2020, there were 92,000 people that were above 100 years old. They have statistics that show by 2060, there will be 589,000 people above the age 100. And that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you think about it, we know that sharks and whales, they can reach an age of 200. So if they can do it, why can't we? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, there's a professor at Stanford University, Stuart Kim, and he thinks that there are people alive today that will live to be over 200 years old. Wow. But only if they're making good lifestyle choices. Well, that's it, right? That's only if we're um, if we're actually looking after that brain that we have, because, like you say, that cognitively fit uh, definition, we uh, we can be alive, but are we cognitively fit in that time frame, and are we able to fully engage in life at that age? Um, you know, if if we're not looking after our brains in the right way earlier on in life. Well, I think it's interesting. In my book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, I actually have a chapter can a, uh, that couch potatoes have a smaller brain. Mm-hmm. And that that leads into you cannot sit in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. You've got to get up and move. The A couple of weeks ago, I did a show on dance movement therapy. There are 350 million people around the world with depression. And the study showed how much just the body movement, the motor planning, just getting up and dance, how effective it was in beating depression. Mm, I'm all about, uh, yeah, moving for joy, I think, is so important that that uh, not just moving because you have to, but finding joy in movement, I think, is uh, like a, a, a double, um, double whammy for the brain health. And I just think that's so, so important. And yeah, exercise, as I say, that's definitely one of the first things that comes to mind for me in movement, because I think we don't do enough of it. Absolutely. Everything in our modern lives is designed to make us uh, need to move less, (laughs) to make it everything just comes to our door right now. We don't even have to go outside for anything anymore. And, you know, exercise does increase things like BDNF, which is the growth factor, which is why those sedentary people have smaller brains, because they're not stimulating those brain growth factors and actually, you know, supporting the growth uh, and development and connections in their brain. So, yeah, movement and joyful movement is just, um, yeah, just such an important part. And when you stop and think about it, it makes total sense because, you know, exercise is going to boost your blood flow. Mm -hmm. It's going to get other positive nutrients to the brain. It's going to increase your level of dopamine. 
It's going to get new brain cells that can help that brain self-regulate and calm down. I mean, I can think of many times when I was wound up about something and I just went out and took, I grabbed the dog, let's go for a walk. And how that walk just really cleared my mind, mm-hmm. took away that, you know, that anxious feeling. I came back and I was in a much better mood. Absolutely. The great thing about that too is that um, the the exercise part of that uh, process or part of those benefits is like you say, that that blood flow to the brain but also the connections between those different parts of our brain. So where we have those sort of that emotional center and then that more logical, um, you know, reasoning conscious center, exercise and movement helps to connect those two. So when we're feeling, you know, emotional and anxious and all kind of strung out and not thinking clearly, just going for a walk can actually change the way your brain communicates and the different areas of the, the brain that are activated and can help you, you know, think more clearly and more rationally and, you know, blast through those emotional, <laughs> emotional responses a little bit more. Well, you know, to me, it's because I talk brain health all day, every day, and I <laughs> love it. I'm passionate about it. But, you know, the one, did you know your brain is 80% water? Yes. And that, what we drink, our coffee, our, you know, our alcohol, that dehydrates the brain. Mm-hmm. So even if that we just dehydrate that brain by 2%, it impairs our performance. It, we can't pay attention as well. We don't remember as well. We're not quite as quick on our toes. So if you do nothing more complicated than, you know, you're supposed to drink half your body weight in water every day. Mm-hmm. And That's a lot though, isn't it? I don't know many people that would actually reach that. Well, there's only one way to get there, and that's to to set a goal and to shoot for it. I mean, and I have, you know, people say, oh, sparkling water is better. This water's better. And I think find water that tastes good to you mm-hmm. and just drink as much of it as you can. And, and I never drank water until I got pregnant. Really? And, you know, all of a sudden I'm pregnant and I've got to be oh so healthy which means I can't have coffee. I can't have Diet Coke. So that yeah. I can't have wine. So that didn't leave a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. um, You're kind of forced into it, right? But I started drinking water. And I do drink half my body weight every day in water. Because once it becomes part of your lifestyle, and once you find, I mean, I don't drink tap water. It doesn't taste good to me. Mm-hmm. But find a water that tastes good to you and just drink as much as you can and you'll be surprised at how much you can drink. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, what you say about finding something that, that you enjoy is, or, you know, the water that you like is so important too, because we force so much stuff on ourselves, don't we? We sort of force ourselves into doing all these things because we should do them, but there's lots of different ways to to achieve those goals. And if you can find a way that works for you and that, you know, feels good for you, then that's going to fire off all those dopamine signals in the brain as well. And it's just going to cement that habit into your, into your, you know, brain pathways as well. So finding that, um, that enjoyment and something that you, that you like rather than forcing yourself into things you don't like is, um, it's just going to make things so much easier. Well, and I think the biggest thing is, you know, because I have a lot of people, my first question is, is do you exercise? And no, but I'm going to start, I'm going to start, I'm going to walk three miles every day. Is that realistic? Set realistic expectations. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Walk one mile the first week. 
And then when you find out how much you enjoy it, walk a mile and a half, you know, build, build up to it. But yeah. where I see exercise routines go, they fall flat is when those real, those expectations they set for themselves are not realistic. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that goes for everything. And that's what, you know, the, the, um, the other part of, of my clinical practice that I've really, really dived into is because all this stuff, like all this stuff for brain health, a lot of it isn't, and like every other health, a lot of it isn't rocket science, right? It is moving your body more, like you say, drinking water. It's all these things that we get told as a kid and all for our lives that we need to do more of. We know all of these things. It's not, um, it's not anything new, but we just struggle to actually do it. And what you say about setting unrealistic expectations, I think, is one of the biggest um, barriers and obstacles that come up with that is we just set, we we think that we should go from where we are now to this perfect, ideal, you know, um, glowing lifestyle overnight because, you know, media and society has conditioned us into this, you know, overnight successes and quick fixes and all of this kind of thing. And it's just, it's not how our brain works and it's not how our body works. And we just don't make habits that that easily and that quickly. So starting small, I always say you can't build on a habit that doesn't exist. So start small, get that habit that actually um, is small enough that it can exist in the first place and then look at building on it later. But the more you try and aim way, way too high and set those expectations really high, you put all sorts of barriers in the way. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. You know, it's too different to your usual routine. You're not used to it. And there's just so many blocks that come up in, in front of that. Whereas if you make the initial step so small, so realistic, so easy to do, and you just kind of slip it into your, um, you know, your lifestyle at the moment, then you can build on it later once it's in there. But I think that is so important to set realistic expectations and and start really small when we're implementing new habits into our lifestyle like that. Well, it, you know, you made such a good point earlier. You mentioned how the brain works and the brain's job is to keep us alive. Yep. <laughs> and <That> safe. <laughs> and safe. And the, in the right hemisphere of the brain, two thirds of the cells are scanning for danger all the time. Is it safe to go out there? Should I be doing this? But the, the way the brain works is it remembers the negative. I mean, the brain writes the best stories, but doesn't really care if it's accurate. You know, if, it, yeah. if it's missing a little bit of information, well, we'll just pull this in, you yeah. know? And, and so those negative stories, you can't exercise, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, research shows us that every day, there are three times more positive events in our life than negative. But what does the brain remember? Absolutely. The negative. Yep, 100%. And, and we'll, we'll inflate it so that it seems like it's even bigger than it actually was as well. So not only do we focus on it, but we give it so much more weight. That little that little monkey becomes a gorilla in it's the room. Sure before we know it. So, you know, what I think is so amazing now is with, and I know there's a lot of good information on the internet and a lot of bad, but there's, there's places like Harvard health that they have actually a a cognitive fitness program, Mm -hmm. you know, 
Mayo Clinic for people that are, have been isolated in the last year that can't get out and feel like they can't access information. It's there. I mean, it, it's there. We just have to really, really want to find it. And we have to really want to find the good information, not the magic. You've worked it with different supplements. I mean, I'm always seeing advertisements for these supplements about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the magic pill. Yeah. Have you have you ever seen a magic pill? No, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it absolutely no, nothing exists like that. And like I say, everyone needs something different. So even if there was a magic pill, it wouldn't work for everyone because it's not going to be able to do, you know, all of the different things that we need to do in order to to look after our brain. It can't possibly do, you know, the the dozens of different things that it takes to keep the brain running well and provide all of the nutrients, all of the, you know, balance all of the neurotransmitters, the hormones. It's just impossible. So our lifestyle Um, you know, and our diet really holds the key there because that can hit, you know, a lot of different targets like exercise, for example, you know, it can do so many different things and improves our gut health, the blood brain barrier, you know, the, um, like we say, the blood flow, it does all of these different things. And, you know, those sorts of lifestyle practices are just, um, you know, there will never ever be a magic pill that will ever replace what we can do with just simply the way that we, we eat and move and live on a daily basis. Well, and even lifestyle choices. How many hours a day do you spend looking at a screen? The blue light that comes from a screen can interfere with it. It affects your brain. Um, it can interfere with your sleep. So lifestyle choices, and that's the hard thing to change. You know, I don't want to give that up. I enjoy that. Yeah, it is. It is very tricky. But um, yeah, I think like we say, starting small and setting realistic expectations and just kind of keeping things familiar, but uh, making yeah really small but small but consistent changes is I think what I would uh, yeah what I would call the the best approach. Well, and I think it's important that as you start to focus on your brain health. You know, you pay attention. Are you having a hard time learning something that you used to could could do fairly easy? Do you, you know, memory is the first thing that we that we seem to notice. But what I see a lot in my clinic is people have a hard time really identifying what the problem is. Mm-hmm. They're dissatisfied, but you know, I don't I don't like the way that that problem got resolved. And if you break it down, it goes back to the information processing. The problem never was defined in the right way to start with. So brain health is something, I mean, it's definitely a whole head function, mm-hmm. uh, but you've got to know, I, I tell everybody, you've got to know what you're looking for. I don't care if you're 14 or 44. If you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. Absolutely. You know, there's so much that that we could talk about with the brain and and there's just so much to say that's encouraging. And the more research I see, the more encouraged I get. Um, But I think it starts with the earlier that we start making better decisions about our brain health, the better off we'll be. We're going to take a break. Come back and learn. Listen to more with us. We'll be back after these messages. It's words you never heard. We 
all know that alarm clocks were invented for people who don't have kids. But before the alarm clock was invented, how did people wake up in time for work? Previous to the alarm clock gaining popularity, people in Britain and Ireland might have been awakened each morning by a knocker-up. A knocker-up was a person that was paid a few pence a week to wake up slugabeds and clinomaniacs. Those are people who like to sleep in. Knocker-ups used pea shooters to roust folks who were oversleeping and long bamboo sticks to reach windows on higher floors. It was the responsibility of the knocker-up to not leave the window until they were sure their client didn't go back to sleep, even if they had metutilepia, otherwise known as waking up on the wrong side of the bed. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and Words You Never Heard has been brought to you by the Bariatric Surgery Center of Dallas. a recording of our own voice, it always sounds different than we think. This is because the bones in our skull create a resonance from within that makes our voice sound deeper to us. But our recorded voice is how others hear us. I'm sure I'm not the first person who has uttered the words, I really don't sound like that. Do I? Margaret Thatcher famously underwent vocal training to lower her voice and make her sound more statesmanlike. Recently, British Airways polled Americans and Britons to see who they believed had the sexiest voices. Morgan Freeman was voted number one. If a judge loves the sound of his own voice, expect a long sentence. What's a word for a person who loves to hear the sound of their own voice? A philodox. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. In the first part of the show, we started off talking about the simple things that you can do for brain health, like drink lots of water, get regular exercise. But, you know, I think one of the most important things that you do for yourself is self-care. And that we all need to unplug and recharge our batteries and I think many of us, oh, I can't stop. I, mean, I got to get this done before the end of the day. I got to get this done. We just need to relax. And I think in America, I can speak strongly about that. We have a hard time doing that. Absolutely. I think we're uh, not too different uh, here in, in the UK and even back in my home homeland of New Zealand. I think it's all very, very similar and, you know, like we talked about um, things that just make it easy to to sit and move less. I think it's the same thing, right? Everything is designed to make us more efficient, to make us do more in less time and increase productivity. And there's this go, go, go aspect uh, that, yeah, we really just have lost the art of relaxing and switching off and, you know, being bored every now and then and, you know, letting letting our creativity flow a little bit rather than having an absolutely packed schedule from you know sun up to sundown every day to to occupy our brains and you're right I think self-care is just such an important part of that whole process and without that winding down you know there's this the whole stress system is just so amped up so amplified and we know that high cortisol uh, shrinks brains as much as 
the gas every now and then and, and yeah, really focus on that relaxation, I think. Well, you know, you bring up a good point because whenever we get we get nervous or real anxious, our autonomic nervous system gets all out of whack. The brain's mm-hmm. out of whack, so that's out of whack. And that sympathetic takes over and we go into that that fight or flight mode. And we have a hard time because because those adrenal glands are kicking out all that cortisol and we have a hard time. And then or if the parasympathetic takes over, it's just as bad because then we go numb. We're just exhausted. We just want to lay on the floor in that fetal position. And honestly, that window of tolerance, keeping those two systems in balance, that window is not that big. So we all have to learn. We have to have strategies on how we calm ourselves down. We all have to have things that we do. For me, I just close my eyes, put my feet on the ground. I I don't know why, but I put my hands on my knees. It just makes me feel really grounded. I close my eyes and I breathe. And I focus on feeling that breath down around my belly button. Because I... When we're talking, we have to be taking 12 to 14 breaths a minute to say it all. But everybody's optimal breath rate is between four and seven breaths a minute. Mm -hmm. And to just take the time and relax and slow your breath down. You slow your breath down, you you slow your heart rate down. You create heart rate variability. Heart rate variability is a sign of health for people with diabetes, people with heart conditions. Um, there's just so many things that we can do. We have to learn how to do it. I mean, it's not simple. I, I can remember when I learned how to breathe slowly. It took me a while. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny concept, isn't it, that you have to learn how to breathe properly. <laughs> but it's just, it is so important. And I think I, I'm a real... Um, a real nature seeker and perhaps that's coming from the beautiful Greenland of New Zealand but I think that for me makes that real difference and when I'm stressed out or when I'm a bit sort of amped up and I need a moment for me the first thing is to you know get outside and get into something green get in amongst the the trees and the grass and just I think that automatically for me slows my breathing down as a side effect but just being in amongst that nature uh, for me is just, um, yeah, that's, that's my happy place. (laughs) Well, and we all have a happy place, but we don't always know how to get there. And I'll encourage people, I'll use some visualization with them. I'll say, okay, sit, sit in the chair, close your eyes. Think about that happy place that you have. Is it When you were a little kid, was it in the kitchen of your grandmother's house when she was baking cookies? Or is it running on the beach with your dog? Identify that happy place. Then once you get there, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? We've all got a happy place. We just have to learn how to access it. Yeah, and that absolutely helps us to tap into that calm space, doesn't it? So just like you say about switching the nervous systems, it just gives you that moment to breathe, to think about, to connect to different parts of your, uh, you know, your emotional and your brain centers and and really just, um, yeah, just kind of 
I think it's all about that mindfulness, isn't it? And bringing sort of bringing yourself back from that crazy distracted world that we're that we're in, and and bringing us back into the present, even if that means for a moment going to a happy place, which is perhaps somewhere else right now. But it ultimately helps to you know anchor us in the present and really kind of slow us down. And yeah, I think we all just need a whole lot more slowing down. <laughs> Well, and I think in the last year, we've all globally, we've all been through a very stressful time. We've been through a pandemic. And I think about the older people that are in the assisted living. They haven't seen their families in months. You know, I think loneliness is probably, that's my biggest concern for those people. Being isolated like that. When you're, when you're, Push the shot aside. Who wants to pay attention to your brain health? Mm, absolutely, and that really that loneliness is really an interesting aspect too, because low social contact is actually one of the twelve identified risk factors for dementia. So it's actually been, um, you know, labelled by the Lancet and the World Health Organization as one of the 12 modifiable risk factors. So there is strong enough evidence that low social contact increases our risk of dementia. So it's not just something that it's, you know, it's nice to have, you know, and it would be nice to have more social contact or it's kind of a luxury. It's actually a really crucial part of our health and well-being and that connection with other people. Um, just changes our our brain and our mental state and changes the neurotransmitters that we produce and literally changes the structure and the function of our brain to the you know to the point that it increases our risk of dementia if that's not there and I think that is just um, you know that's just so powerful to to know that that's such a strong contributor so that we can prioritize that aspect especially now like you say when we're so distanced and we're a lot more isolated now I think making an effort to get that social contact back and thinking about older people you know that you know older people in our society and really trying to kind of give a little back by increasing that social contact for them could just really do such a huge huge service to their their brain health and their mental health. Well, you're right. And, and, you know, buddy up, find someone, if you've got a neighbor that's older and you know they have a difficult time just with their changing the light bulb, but buddy up, go down and say, hey, I can come down once a month and I can help you change your light bulbs or I can help you do the things that you need help with. And how long, how long does it take you when you go down there once a month? Mm-hmm. 30 minutes? 30 minutes? Yeah. And there's some some other really interesting um, research about that, too, around actually like volunteering and helping other people actually improves our own brain health. So you think that you're doing this for the other person and you think that it's, you know, you're helping this other person for their benefit. But actually, you get the benefits of that as well. So, you know, people that volunteer their time and, um, you know, specifically show gratitude and specifically help other people out, uh, they reap the benefits as well on their own brain health. So it just, it works in both directions. It's, it's just so powerful. Oh, I so agree. And I think, you know, it's like nothing makes you feel better or nothing makes me feel better 
than when I know that I did something that really helped somebody. Absolutely. Just, just that in itself, but the being there, helping other people, volunteering, and that's, that's all opening back up. And, you know, even if, if you love animals, just volunteer at a local shelter. Um, if you like to sing, our churches are reopening, join a choir. Yeah. You've got, you've got to find an activity to share with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Those connections. And that, I think that's another thing we've lost from, you know, more ancient times where, you know, humans are very, very social beings and we are very community focused and we, we tend to lose a little bit of that with our, you know, being very self-sufficient and, um, you know, being a little bit more independent and isolated. We sort of forget to reach out and forget to foster those connections as much, I think, as we used to. Well, and we need we need to get that on our radar screen because, as we talked about earlier, we're all living to be so much longer. Mm. And, you know, some of us at 90 may be able to go change the light bulb and some of us may not. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But you got to remember, when you hit 95, you may be needing that help with the light bulb. Absolutely. And it's a, you know, it's use it or lose it, right? If you're not using the skills that you do have, then, uh, you know, sort of learning and development um, reduces as well. So if you can do something for somebody who hasn't got that ability, then, you know, that's that's helping you to be able to reinforce those skills and, and do those things for other people. And yeah, gosh, if we're all living till we're 200, we're, uh, we're definitely going to need to band together, aren't we, and, and help each other out a little bit more. We are. So for anybody that's out there listening, think about that. You know, who do you know that could, could just use just the smallest, kindest gesture? And sometimes just getting that kind gesture is all you need. Well, thank you for thinking about me. That makes my day. Mm. Yeah. That little boost of, of happy hormone from, from someone doing a good deed can make a huge difference to the day. And going back to your point about those, you know, the positive points in your day versus the negative, you know, that helps us to then focus on more positives when we sort of feel good and see the positives in each day. So, um, yeah, boosting those little little positive points in each day is, uh, is, is a good aspect. Well, you know, one of the things I encourage people to do is because you challenge yourself, activate your brain, you know, do something different, whether it's a cross, a lot of people will play, you know, they'll play bridge or they'll do crossword puzzles or maybe you build a piece of furniture, but find something that will challenge your mind because that will have short and long-term benefits for your brain. You know, stump yourself with something. Yeah. And those, you know, learning new skills and whether it's, playing a new instrument or learning a new language, you know, that all helps to support these connections in our brain and support that neuroplasticity and the neurogenesis and the building of new brain cells and new nervous, um, you know, nerve connections and all of that just, uh, you know, increases our cognitive reserve and helps us have more, um, you know, have more brain matter there to to get us through our, our older years. So, yeah, hobbies and you know, practicing new skills is um, 
not only for that aspect, but also just for the time out, right? So those sorts of things, those creative endeavors can be a form of self-care and a form of sort of winding down and disconnecting from the analytical work stuff that we, you know, do all day, every day. So these little hobbies and, or, you know, um, self-care things can hit so many different benefits at once. They're really, really multifaceted. Well, they are. And, and, you know, you mentioned neurogenesis. And I can remember when we used to think that at, at we hit a certain age and that just went away, mm. you know. And yeah. now, now we know that is not true. That brain is capable of making new connections. Of You know, once you start using something, a pathway in your brain that you haven't used in a while, you can open that pathway up. You can get those neurons and dendrites to start talking to each other, wiring and firing. And there's so much that we can do for our own our own brain health. I mean, there's a lot of things online, you know, brain games that you can play. And a lot of people ask me, should, do you think that's going to, should I play them? And I'm like, well, it's not going to change the way your brain's wiring and firing, but it's exercise. Mm-hmm. And any exercise that you get, particularly if you choose a venue where you can compare your scores on a weekly basis, you know, wow, on Monday I was at 72% and on Friday I was at 81%. That's valuable information. Yeah. And that helps keep you motivated as well, right? They're like setting mini goals to, to outdo your, your last score. And I think goals are so important. Because we've we've all got to be conscious of what we're looking for. You know, we're everybody I meet can tell me their cholesterol level. They can tell me their body mass index. But you know, can you tell me the last time you were happy? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Well, you've got you you've got to pay attention to those emotions and and your your health. I mean, for women. The biggest, and this is globally, the biggest cause of death for women is heart disease. Mm. And how many women get their heart checked on a regular basis? Maybe they get their blood pressure checked. I hope they do. Because all those things can negatively impact your cognitive health. Yeah, they definitely can. Yeah, Uh, like high blood pressure and cardiovascular health is very, very tightly linked to to cognitive health and yeah I think you're right I think we again with this this whole analytical aspect isn't it we we want to look at the numbers and we want to look at you know what's what's going on and 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 get those right but we've got to connect to what makes us human as well we're not just a set of a set of data we are human beings with emotions and uh, you know our mental health suffers so much if we don't pay it the attention that it needs well, you know, you know a lot more about nutrition than I do. And I get the question, I get this question at least once a week. And that is, what is the best diet? Mm-hmm. So my, from my research, um, the, the one that, the, the sort of diet, and I, and I hate to call it a diet just because that word kind of conjures up all sorts of feelings for a lot of different people. And, you know, uh, we, we don't need a diet. We need a, a way of eating. <laughs> so I, I prefer to go with that term than a diet. But from the research, the Mediterranean style way of eating is just by far the 
standout approach for brain health and for mood and mental health. You know, depression, anxiety, um, they can, following the Mediterranean style diet can reduce your symptoms of depression and anxiety by about 30%, uh, sometimes more depending on how strictly you follow that diet. Um, and when it comes to cognitive function, uh, the MIND diet is a sort of a hybrid of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, which is the uh, diet for hypertension and um, high blood pressure. The, the MIND diet is um, uh, research shows that it can reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's by up to 53%. So it can slash your risk of Alzheimer's in half just by following the diet. And it's not a tricky one. So it's very similar to the Mediterranean style diet, you know, lots of great fish and healthy oils, olive oil, just a real focus on whole foods, largely plant-based, but not plant exclusive. And I think that's kind of important because I think there's so many nutrients that are crucial to brain health um, that are found in animal foods. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's a really important um, aspect is that plant-based but not plant-exclusive. Well, you know, and, and my response has been much simpler. As I said, you know more about nutrition than <laughs> I do. But what my advice is this, is stay away from processed foods. Absolutely. If, I mean, if it comes in a can, if it's good for two years, if it comes in a box, if it comes in a bag, there's lots of stuff that was put in there to chemicals to make it last that long. Just if you do nothing more than stay away from processed foods, you're treating your brain nicely. Absolutely. And I think that's what so many different diets have in common. So, you know, there is a lot of research behind the Mediterranean diet, but there's also some interesting research, especially with Alzheimer's um, around like the keto diet um, and through various other diets as well. And when you really look at them, I think, what you've just said there hits the nail on the head. They're, they're low or completely devoid of processed foods. They're based on whole plant or animal foods, but it's whole unprocessed foods. And I just think that is absolutely the key. And if that's the one thing that we did with our diet, then we would be, you know, streaks ahead. And those other little tweaks as to whether you go a little bit more fat or a little bit more, you know, um, carbohydrate based, those are a little bit more individualized. But in general, you're absolutely right. Cutting out those processed foods is just, you know, the the first and foremost most important part and definitely the, the sort of linchpin of the success of most of those diets that are studied for, for brain health and for everything else, for your skin, for cardiovascular health, for fertility you know, the processed foods have just got to go. They're delicious well, sometimes, but they've got to go. <laughs> oh, they're delicious many times <laughs> for me. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are times that I'll eat a big, you know, I'll eat something and then I just feel like my brain's been drained. Mm -hmm. You know, why did I eat that? There are brain draining foods out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it too has to do with the inflammatory nature of those. So I think a lot of those processed foods and the things that do give you that sort of feeling of being drained or being taxed um, is, is often because of the inflammation. And, 
you know, just from all of the additives and the sugar and the impact on our gut health, you know, those inflammatory um, processes are, you know, sort of underpinning a lot of the different um, sort of disease processes that we have. And when it comes to the brain, the, the blood-brain barrier, so the, the barrier between the brain and the rest of the body, is, is so um, vulnerable to inflammation or damage from inflammation. So if you're eating all of those processed foods, you know, that blood-brain barrier gets impacted. And we do, we feel brain foggy, uh, we can't concentrate very well, our mood goes a little bit out the window and you start getting mood swings um, or, you know, irritability and anxiety. And, you know, those, yeah, those processed foods are often just to blame because of that, yeah, that real inflammatory response. And I think sometimes we know when we eat something that doesn't, you know, set well with us, but we don't pay attention to it. We just uh-huh. We choose to ignore it. I mean, a lot of times dairy products will have a direct impact on people. And I'll say, you know, I notice you're kind of clearing your throat. Have you got some phlegm in your throat? Well, yeah, I always get that when I eat cheese. And do you you continue to eat cheese? (laughs) It's making those connections, right? And it's that, again, it comes back to that mindfulness. I think we just, we're so distracted. We've gotten out of the habit of really looking at our body and focusing on it and going, what is, what is healthy? What does healthy actually feel like? We've got so disconnected from, from that. And yeah, just bringing that awareness back to, you know, like you say, like, does this happen when you have the dairy? Well, maybe what happens if you don't have the dairy? People just don't think of that because they, um, they're so used to feeling a little bit rubbish that, um, you know, that awareness just isn't there to make those connections. Well, I know you do a lot of work on one-on-one with people, and you shared such fabulous information with us today, but if people wanted to learn more about you or to find you online, how would they do that? So I'm on Instagram. My handle is just Kathy Williams Health, so it's Kathy with a C. Uh, Similarly, Facebook is the same, Kathy Williams Health, Um, and my website is just my name, kathywilliams.co.uk. I've made it very simple to find me. (laughs) So, but, but please pay attention to that, that website. It's .co. It's kathywilliams.co.uk. It's not .com. It's not. Yeah. That's what we do in the States. We're always looking for that .com. (laughs) But, you know, I've enjoyed talking with you today and, and I, I think that, we need more, we need more brain warriors out there. And we People do. That, yeah, that just understand the importance of brain health. And, and, you know, I don't wish anybody has to, to go through what you went through with your grandmother. I went through something like that with my aunt. I'll never forget, you know, it was a great day if she knew who I was. Yeah. And, and I would leave crying on the days that she did. And it just yeah. broke my heart. So pay attention stop, pay attention, think about, drink that water, exercise, think about what you're putting in your mouth, think about your sleep. Sleep is so, so important to your brain health. And last but not least is that self-care, because if you don't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of other people? It's, it's impossible to do. And we're all living longer. I don't know if I'm shooting for 200, but I'm, def- I'm definitely shooting for 100 and over. And I, I'm, it's nice to know there are people out there like you, Kathy, 
that will help me get there successfully. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio,